Modern Love, the podcast, is supported by... Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. From the New York Times and WBUR Boston, this is Modern Love. Stories of love, loss, and redemption. I'm your host, Meghna Chakrabarty. I'm going to guess that you're the kind of person who would do almost anything for your best friend. But would you start dating just to make your best friend feel better? Victoria Riddell did just that. And she writes about it in her essay, Escaping from a Dire Diagnosis, on Match.com. It's read by actor and singer Rita Wilson. She's been in movies such as Sleepless in Seattle and Runaway Bride, and had recurring roles on Girls and The Good Wife. Rita's just released a new album called Bigger Picture. When my best friend since childhood wound up back on the oncology unit for her third relapse, I decided it was time to start online dating. I knew from Nance's prior hospitalizations that talking about lymphoma and PET scans was not her idea of fun. A far better entertainment would be for me to get on Match.com so we could hang out together on her hospital bed scrolling through potential dates. For 42 years, our friendship had been primary. We helped each other through every crisis. Her separation, my divorce along with our everyday worries as mothers. Putting myself back on the dating market for her pleasure was the least I could do. It would be just like what we had done since our shared fourth-grade crush on Tommy H., having a blast checking out boys. But there was another reason. I had begun hearing myself say, this is not a dress rehearsal. This meaning our lives. After a divorce 22 years earlier and a long post-marriage relationship, I had kept all potential romance light, which mostly meant dating charming but impossible men, not anyone with whom to spend the rest of my life. With Nance's uncertain prognosis, the rest of my life took on new meaning. Let's do it, Nance said. You deserve a big love. Well, you don't deserve this, I said, as her doctor and a flock of medical students crowded into her room. Life's for the living, she said. Let's both get a new protocol for life. First, I needed to create a profile. The name I chose for myself? Darkbird9. Um, I understand the dark part, Nance said, twirling my near-black hair. 
and nine is for your birthday. But uh, what's up with the bird? She frowned to indicate it didn't sound alluring. I thought it gave me glamour and mystery, I confessed. Maybe if you're hoping to date an ornithologist, she said, shaking her head. She and I composed a straightforward profile. No mention of beach walks, no glasses of fine wine. I said I was a book nerd, despite Nance claiming that nerd isn't a tantalizing word on a dating site. Right away, Nance wanted me to wink at a cute and much younger guy. I'm not winking, I said, and I'm not going on dates with men 15 years younger. She conceded that that made practical sense, but it was far less of a vicarious thrill for her. Luckily, because thrills on the cancer unit were my immediate concern, messages piled up in Darkbird 9's inbox. It was easy to weed out the unsuitable. You're perfect, one man wrote. Marry me. You'd look great in something silky, another declared. I didn't reply to the gentleman who wrote, I you want date and bring you to restaurant nice. It took discipline not to reconsider my ban on younger men, and not just because Nance kept saying, This is bleak, Vic, as we scrolled through the age-appropriate ones. There were paunchy men who penned letters tinged with sad, wry hopefulness, and fit guys in tight cycling shirts who asked to take me out between a scuba trip to the Barrier Reef and training for a triathlon in Utah. Their notes sounded aerobic. Eventually, I scheduled myself for five dates in a week, one at lunch each day, followed by a debrief on the oncology unit. The next week, Nance and I were sitting in an alcove on her floor, the Hudson River glimmering out the window. I was telling her how date number one had proposed a second date as we finished our cob salads. As someone who had been online dating for months, he had assured me that our date was pretty much perfection. A chemo drip in her arm, Nance said, You don't have to sleep with him, but would you go out again? Perfectly nice, I said, but he's not for me. In fact, the whole dating game seemed more and more like a pathetic diversion. Let me look at him again, she said, tilting the screen. I clicked on his profile. Oh, what were we thinking, she said, wincing. Show me tomorrow. By Wednesday, I stumbled back to the hospital, exhausted from my whirlwind dating life. Tuesday had been a doubleheader. Lunch with one man, coffee with another. One asked if he could call from his business trip so we could keep the momentum going. You're a dating success, Nancy said. But her boast had no oomph. She was exhausted, too. We were both trying to keep the charade going. She was tortured by the recurrence of her illness, by being pulled out of her life again, stuck in a hospital and made into a full-time patient. It seemed beyond wrong that I deserved anything, let alone 
a great love while she once again lost her hair and prepared to endure a stem cell transplant. So it was with zero expectations that I waited on a restaurant stoop in Soho the next day for Mr. Thursday. My plan? Another quick salad and onto the subway. A friend would be joining Nancy and me to hang out for the afternoon and evening. Suddenly, a pair of red sneakers appeared beside me on the stoop. I looked up and, oh, a wonderfully present and handsome face smiled down at me. Hey, he said, I'm Bruce. Within moments at a back table, we were laughing, talking books and children. He was smart, curious, and beyond funny, with pale blue-green eyes and a naughty smile. Ridiculously cute. And sexy. Ridiculously. This is really great, I said shyly, returning from the bathroom. Yeah, Bruce said with a shrug. It's a great room. When I told Nance about this moment, she gasped and said, No, no! Exhibiting that same protective disappointment as when my high school crush rejected me. As if she couldn't imagine someone not falling for her best friend. Exactly, I said. First guy I actually like, and he's clearly not feeling it. I paused to elevate the drama. But, 20 minutes later, he announces, I wasn't expecting lunch to go like this at all. That's what I was saying, I say. I know, he says with a crooked smile, but I got a little freaked out. Vic, this is the one, Nance said, radiating a love and certainty that I have basked in since I was eight. Her face, one I knew better than my own, offered absolute confidence. Trust me, she said, holding my hand. This is the one. There was a next date with Bruce and another. And by the time Nance left the hospital, her lymphoma in remission and a stem cell transplant scheduled, she had proclaimed that I had found my real match. She was right. I was falling in love with him, open to what might be possible. But soon, the joy of shaping a life with Bruce began to feel like betrayal. How could I fall in love at 50 while my best friend struggled to hold on to her life? After a successful stem cell transplant, months of post-transplant quarantine, a hopeful year and a half of health, the disease returned, along with new protocols and terrible side effects. Often it felt impossible to create a future with Bruce when Nancy's life was increasingly compromised. And yet, we did. It seemed incongruous that our hospital dating game eventually led to the day, 18 months later, that I called her to say, Bruce and I are getting married. 
I told you, Nance said, with the know-it-all tone she had bossed me around with since grade school. This is exactly what was supposed to happen. Now tell me everything. I took a long breath and began. Because forget dress rehearsals or any notion of deserved. This was life. And because telling each other everything is what we had done since we were girls. And would continue to do until we couldn't. Now, as I wake each morning to a cup of coffee from Bruce and his hilarious morning monologue, I remember how Nance helped me find this late-life surprise. And how Bruce's strong, clear love helped me through the darkness of losing my best friend. Life is for the living, Nance would say. I laugh hard at Bruce's wicked humor because it feels so good to laugh and because I would do anything for Nance. Even make a life of true happiness without her there to share it. Rita Wilson, reading Victoria Riddell's essay, Escaping from a Dire Diagnosis, on Match.com. We'll hear more from Victoria after the break. This podcast is supported by Carvana. Looking for a new set of wheels? Shop for your next car the convenient way. 100% online with Carvana. Whether you're shopping for a vehicle at your leisure or if you need to get on the road, Carvana makes it super easy and hassle-free to browse their massive inventory of cars. Whenever, wherever. Plus, Carvana has thousands of quality cars for under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to shop for cars the convenient and affordable way. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer, no more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. We asked Victoria Riddell what she remembers about the first time she and Nancy met in 1967. She says Nancy was the new kid at school at the beginning of the year. 
She walked into the classroom. She had long braids. She had pierced ears. I didn't know another little girl with pierced ears. And she was sort of a little bit dazzling, you know, in the way that little girls can be dazzling. And pretty early on the playground, I thought, oh, I really want to be friends with this girl. Forty-six years later, after multiple recurrences of her cancer, Nancy made the decision to stop treatment and enter hospice in 2013. I completely understood that decision. I think anyone who has watched someone move through illness and then wellness and then illness and wellness and seen the toll that it takes not just the getting ill part and managing ever new treatments and all of the side effects, many of which are can be horrific, but also the slow uphill back into a full life and then to have that taken down again and have to rebuild it back, knows that a person who's ill is slowly having to grapple with, in my rebound, am I actually feeling alive enough to warrant this. And I'd spoken with Nance a lot, and I'd uh, there were times in the prior recurrence where she was giving up, and I was challenging that and pushing that. When she made the decision, I was right there with her. I was right there with her. Nancy passed away not long after entering hospice. And Victoria says she misses just being able to pick up the phone and call her friend. That's a pretty hard thing not to be able to just press that cell phone and be able to say, Nance, there's something I want to tell you. And we did a lot of that. Even when we were unable to reach each other, we decided that we would use answering machines to check in. So we would call each other and sing to each other on the phone, make up little ditties, poems, tell each other ridiculous stories tell each other a memory that we'd had. I miss that. I miss all the ways that I can hear her voice and hang out with her and all the really unexpected things that she did. Victoria says that Nancy was front and center at her wedding celebration in 2011. And she also says her husband remains a great source of joy in her life. He's still super funny. He still wakes me up with a cup of coffee and with some sort of monologue that has me laughing. Uh, There's a lot of high hilarity in our relationship, and I enjoy it, and a lot of seriousness, and I enjoy that. So I think there's less change, less difference, and there is growth. And there's also a willingness to be open. Being alive takes courage. It takes courage to really allow yourself to feel the grief of loss, and it takes courage to allow yourself to feel the possibility of pleasure and joy. So I think that's what the piece tries to reckon with, and so I guess that's what I would hope someone would come away from it with. That's Victoria Riddell. She's the author of three books of poetry and five books of fiction. Her new novel, based in part on the death of her friend Nancy, is called Before Everything. We've got more after the break.
Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. My name is Thomas Gibbonsnap. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer, no more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Here's Daniel Jones, editor of the Modern Love column for the New York Times. And I've seen this a lot in, in essays where someone is dying and thinking about what they're leaving behind. There's often an aspect of like, you're not going to have me going forward, but if I can help you discover someone else, you know, it's just a way of sort of living on in in that person's life, even though you're not around anymore, because you helped arrange who the baton was going to be passed off to, in a way. And here's Rita Wilson. I think the reason this stood out to me was because I had lost two girlfriends and my dad in a very short period of time. My friend Nancy to ovarian cancer, and my friend Nora Ephron, also to cancer. So the importance of friendship and being able to be a source of support for your friends when they're going through something is really important. And having also gone through breast cancer myself, your girlfriends come through for you in ways that you never dreamed. And one of them particularly is being able to laugh. It's the laughter that normalizes things and makes you feel like life will be okay again. Rita also wanted us to remind you that it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month this month. To learn more about breast cancer, donate, or share your story of how you or a loved one have been affected, go to nationalbreastcancer.org. Thanks again to Rita for reading this essay. Her new album is called Bigger Picture. It's an acoustic album of stories about reflection and struggle, available on Amazon and iTunes. Next week, Kristen Bell. The night we ordered the sex chair, we'd been drinking. Not a lot, but enough to make a sex chair seem like an investment, like junk bonds or an IRA. Thank you. 
Modern Love is a production of the New York Times and WBUR, Boston's NPR station. It's produced, directed, and edited by Jessica Alpert, Caitlin O'Keefe, and John Parati. Original scoring and sound design by Matt Reed. The idea for the Modern Love podcast was conceived by Lisa Tobin. Iris Adler is our executive producer. Daniel Jones is the editor of Modern Love for the New York Times and advisor to the show. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. See you next week.